Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is JF. And this is Phil. Phil and I are sitting in the same room, a rare occasion indeed. So we decided to take advantage of the, of the situation to record a live intro. For Donna Tartt's The Secret History. You know what, Phil? What, JF? There are books that are so weird that no one notices they're weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Would you like to say more on that subject? Well, the thing about Donna... (laughs) (laughs) Keep going, keep going. The thing about Donna Tartt's secret history is that it is a genuinely strange novel, which I didn't realize was strange until uh, this latest read. Yeah. I only recently discovered it myself. And yeah, realizing that this work of fiction that has become a kind of a... What's what's the analogy that I'm groping for here? Like uh, Catcher in the Rye, yeah, right, or, or Great Gatsby, like yeah, one of those like a sort stable, of yeah, yeah a novel, classic, a novel of a time and place that becomes sort of like a, I don't know, an, like an eternal moment in American literature, right? One of those sort of deals, yeah. And such books often are whatever their other virtues, somewhat unweird. Yeah. This, however, is. Not unweird. It, it resists the process of, you know, well, the thing about, the, I think Catcher in the Rye, you might argue, is kind of weird, but it's so metabolized. It really takes a fresh look to see it. And maybe what Donna Tartt created in The Secret History is of that order. I just find that the book is suffused with the strange. In fact, we were talking before recording this, and Phil mentioned, I think, very rightly, um, I think this is something we talk about in the episode you're about to listen to, that uh, there's something very uh, Machinesque about Donna Tartt's yeah. writing in this book, specifically. Yeah. yeah. So if you're a fan of Arthur Machin, and you're a fan of Donna Tartt, then you now you know why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is a novel that has, and we talk about this as well, a kind of force field of strangeness that is not so much perceptible in itself but perceptible in the perturbations of right. the characters that people this novel mm-hmm. and therefore in the perturbations that it creates in the reader yeah because right? in, in a way it's almost like the text is constantly inviting us to consider the possibility that for example Dionysus is actually active in this narrative or that the psychic who comes to help with the investigation is actually a psychic, or that the dreams that the characters experience are actually dimensions of reality. You know, the novel is constantly daring us to consider that possibility, but never making the decision for us, which I find is what I mean. I think that's what I meant by books that are radically weird because Mm. they, they kind of leave it up to us. 
and that that leaves us in a state of suspense or a state of um, indeterminacy. Also, you should give money to us through Patreon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How's that for a transition? That's a perfect segue. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The Weird Studies is made possible by the generosity of our patrons. We are eternally grateful for those of our listeners who find it in their hearts to transcend that zone of indeterminacy <laughs> and donate a dollar or three or six or more to the weird studies so that we can keep this thing going. Uh, the fact that indeed weird studies is made possible by viewers like you, or I guess listeners, um, is the very fact that JF is here in my living room. Uh, we are doing a live show at the IU Cinema this week, Videodrome, uber yeah. weird, disturbing, and fascinating film by David Cronenberg. And uh, we're screening it live and then doing a live show. And the fact that we were able to do this cool gig uh, at all and pay for, you know, JF to come down here and uh, make the scene, uh, that's, that's you guys. You guys yeah. are allowing us to do that kind of stuff. And, you know, just more generally, I don't know, the support of the kind of work that we're doing is very meaningful to us. Exactly. So, yeah. So thank you uh, to our patrons. Thank you to all of you who are listening. And I, we hope you enjoy this conversation. Yep. start with a discussion of genre yes dark academia which uh, i've read a little bit about i mean I've, I've, it's obviously something i'm familiar with the term but i looked into it and i think um donna tart is largely credited with uh inaugurating this genre with unintentionally inventing yeah that genre although it has it's very very strong precursors sure yeah but in terms of like making it something that's fashionable in the literary world yeah i think that mm -hmm. it's you 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 might you might say that there would have been no harry there wouldn't have been there wouldn't have been no <laughs> double <laughs> negatives i'm having one of those days maybe harry potter would never have existed were it not for donna tart's secret history ain't no harry potter is what you're saying. Ain't no Harry Potter without secret history. Yes, yeah. I think that's the yeah. intellectually respectable formulation of that thought. You know, I have a confession to make with regards to this novel, because I didn't read it till long after it came out. But I did read the back cover, the dust jacket material in 1992. Or maybe I'd read a, a review of it. I knew that it had something to do with the cult of Dionysus. I remember feeling very drawn to it because I had an idea for a book that had to do with the resurgence of Dionysus in the modern era. And I thought, oh my God, I can't read this. It's too close to what I want to... I was 15. Yeah. And so yeah. I finished this novel when I was about 20 or 21. I shudder to think that it might be still sitting in some small press publisher's drawer to this day. Maybe somebody's keeping it around just to show to friends to have a good laugh once in a while. <laughs> you know? um, it was a very bad novel. And so I didn't read it till much later. 
when I did, it blew me away. And, you know, when I first read it, I connected it to one of my favorite authors who you don't hear much about anymore, Robertson Davies, who's a Canadian writer of, mm. I would argue, uh, an author of Dark Academia. Yeah, actually, now that you mention it. I just, I've always felt drawn to this kind of romantic idea of academia as this cloistered little world that somehow accesses other levels of reality that are not accessible to those of us who don't live in that world. And so I love the miniature universe you can build with an academic setting, you know, this mm. little, little, little cosmos that you can, you can put together. And I think she does that really beautifully in this book. To pick up on just one aspect of your comment just now, the exclusivity of the academic setting being part of its appeal, the idea that somewhere in our society there is a place where people are doing esoteric things right. that permit them knowledges that are secret or missing from our official and public culture or even denied, repressed, or forgotten about, and the idea that it's exclusive, right? Yeah. That to be party to the sort of investigations that might lead down these dark paths to hidden places, to be there at all, you have to be a scholar. You have to have already jumped through all of the hoops and lived the kind of life track that might have brought you to that point. That is, oh, in truth, that doesn't really make academia all that exclusive because, after all, at least in the United States and Canada, it's still considered uh, a kind of rite of passage for children of the middle class to spend four years at a college. But I think dark academia, I don't really know what dark academia means, and I'm interested to know what you turned up in your researches on the subject. But it seems to me that dark academia, among other things, could be a way of estranging, perhaps weirding, something that has, from one point of view, a very banal public existence, the academy. Yeah. And especially if you work there, the idea that academia could be a kind of chamber of mysteries, that there might be doors that you could open and pass through that would lead you to heretofore unsuspected places and possibilities, uh, that idea might seem a little comical to somebody who's slogging his way from one administrative committee meeting to another. <laughs> or for that matter, if you're a student slogging your way from one class to another and going about what I think can feel like a very everyday routine. But nevertheless, the feeling that it is in academia where wonders and terrors might still be found in an otherwise sanitized, overlit, and above all safe world, a world in which everything has been roped off and has warnings plastered onto it and everything has been wrapped in bubble wrap, that there is still some place where a naked, unmediated encounter with some terrifying aspect of the real might still be possible. That's a kind of an interesting thing to build a genre on, 
And I yeah. suppose I should also say, like, to what extent are we talking about a genre? You know, because there are genre theorists who weigh in on what a genre can and can't be and blah, blah, blah. And I really don't want to go down that path of association. No. Something that interests me about certain kinds of genres, like exotica, which we talked about in our taboo episode, it would be one such genre. There are some genres that exist only retrospectively. Like the art exists first, like exotica in the 50s. Les Baxter and Ema Sumac are doing their thing in the 50s and people would call it mood music, maybe. Yeah. Um, Kitely would argue that mood music would be the period appropriate term, except when record collectors, people like V. Vale in the 1980s start discovering this music, you know, one penny albums in the most uninhabited cobweb strewn corner of the record shop. They start finding these things and they can discover retrospectively a kind of mood or a, like a historical energy, yeah. a current of energy that they can recognize in hindsight perfectly well what it is. Oh, this is exotica. This is music for the excitation of the exotic imagination. But that only becomes understandable in retrospect. And likewise, dark academia, as I recall from reading very briefly about it, is something that was more or less invented by millennial and Zoomer book enthusiasts around the COVID era. Oh, was yeah. it? I, I thought or, it was. Well, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I got it. I mean, shit, you're, no, you're the I, expert here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. Um, but my impression is that is, it is a retrospective and relatively recent coinage that does the same kind of thing. It's genre as a kind of retrospective discovery of something that was always there. We just didn't have eyes to see it. Right, right. I, I don't put much credence in the genre dark academia. I don't think it's a very useful thing because it has to do with gothic settings in a modern world and with like tweed jackets and the, the whole the descriptions of it are fairly superficial and also the precursors are just so present that uh you mr james i mean you could say that half his stories yeah. are dark academia a lot of the decadent literature hoisman like um Arabour would be you know it goes on and on at robertson davies um uh, which I think Robertson Davies is particularly interesting because he's like writing gothic stories set in a modern university campus. So that's something that's not enough for me to say the genre. So I don't want to talk too much about dark academia. No, either. no, I, I, I actually, I'll tell you right now why I'm sitting down on this is not because I think it's a respectable genre that compels intellectual analysis, right? but rather because I'm very interested in books like The Secret History that go through multiple lives or even just artworks in general. Just to talk about secret history, this is a book that came out in 1992. Yeah. And it was widely heralded. Donna Tartt, I think, hailed as something of a, a prodigy of literary fiction, somebody who had turned out an astonishingly complete and assured novel at a very young age. And it was understood very much in those terms and in terms of like the literary scene of the time, Brett Easton Ellis and David Foster Wallace and other writers who were all coming up around the same time and people thinking of this novel as something that belonged to a certain literary moment. And true enough, all of that stuff may be true, but what's very interesting to me is to see a novel that lives multiple lives where here we are some 30 years later and this novel now means something it means a lot 
to a whole new generation of readers. Right. I told my daughter that we were going to be recording an episode on Secret History, and she was super happy about that. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's one for my, what does she call them, uh, Instagram book girlies. Right. Certainly collegiate young women and even high school age who find in this book something urgent, it communicates something to them. And in thinking about like, I don't know, those retrospective genres like Exotica, the idea that we are discovering something that was always latent in the mm -hmm. book, that was really what I wanted to focus on and then frame the question, what is it that's in the novel that right. younger people now are responding to? Yeah. Jacob Foster, sociologist at UCLA, was telling me that in high school, the secret history served as a kind of like litmus test for admittance into his friend group. <laughs> and that was in the 90s. So uh, that the book still resonates with younger generations is super interesting. Certainly, I think that Harry Potter and the impact it had on millennials might have something to do with that. Not to say that Secret History does not stand on its own as, I think, a monumental piece of fiction. Uh, it's unbelievable to me that Donna Tartt managed to write something on this level at that time, having written very, even very few short stories before, or, you know, like this was kind of her thing. She worked on this from, I think, the age of 20 to 28 or something like that. Hmm. Really amazing. And she has proven to be just a colossal uh, literary talent since then. Yeah. I mean, she writes very slowly. She's only released three books. So Secret History and then um, The, the, the Little, Little Friend. Friend, yeah, which is fantastic. And then The Goldfinch, which I haven't read. Great literature in an age that seems to... Seems opposed to the very concept of great of, literature. Of great literature, of a book that reads not like a film treatment, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And so it's not surprising that the book would have several lives. I think it'll keep reincarnating on and on. And just revisiting it in preparation for this recording, I was struck by the kind of plethora of themes and explorations that this book offers, the weird kind of vectors and tangents that it invites you to explore. It is so untimely. And you feel it even in the book. Like she's constantly opposing the cloistered little world, the group of characters that form the cast of the novel. They exist in the classics department of this small Vermont kind of liberal arts college, but they're constantly, you know, coming up against the rest of the college, which is very much a kind of like mid nineties, almost kind yeah. of frat boy kind of scene. And so it's like, she's very consciously writing in the idiom of another time. And she's imposing a kind of um, worldview onto a time that the novel is self-consciously embracing. It knows it's untimely, but that just makes it even more untimely in itself. It's just such a weird outlier of a novel. So it's strange to me to compare it to, although I know why this happened, but you look at like Alice or David Foster Wallace, the authors who along with Donna Tartt were held as kind of the luminaries of a new generation. I find it's really an outlier. It doesn't quite fit the ethos of that time. And so it's a book that's still trying to find its people and to me, that's the sine qua non of a book that keeps coming back to life. Mm -hmm. That's why it spawned Dark Academia. That's why people who love Harry Potter and want to graduate to like 
a real book set in a world like that. Not to say that Harry yeah. Potter's books are not real books, but you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Serious literature uh, gravitate towards it, but those are just accidental developments that are part mm-hmm. of something that emanates imminently from the book itself. I really think this is a monumental work. You say accidental. I might say contingent or or simply historical. I was using the word in the Aristotelian sense of contingently. Yeah. Just and out. I understand that you're a hardcore Aristotelian. <laughs> I am I increasingly always... these days in the philosophical sense. Wow. These days I go through phases. Right now I'm in an Aristotle trip because of this one passage in the politics, which I think is just brilliant. Um, but anyways, that's another story. What you say is very interesting to me because you're articulating what it is about this novel that allows it to be understood afresh by different populations of readers and successive generations. And I think you're quite right. And you're doing it in a very, I guess, weird studies way, which is looking for something that to some extent is lying outside of at least ordinary contingency, outside of mundane contingency, something that is the way that this novel, like many of the artworks that we talk about, are living out a kind of life in a... I don't want to say supernal or platonic kind of... Subterranean. Yeah, or maybe subterranean is the word I'm looking for. But I also am interested, as somebody who is trained as a historian, I'm also interested in thinking about it historically, those contingencies by which its reception changes over time. I was talking before about how academia, precisely because it holds place for exclusivity, to return to that idea, that is an idea that is in political ill favor in the generally progressive temper of the artistic and intellectual world that you and I live within is such that exclusivity or like anything that asserts a hierarchy where there are insiders and outsiders, initiates and the unwashed masses, that will always be in somewhat ill favor. That's a mild way of putting it. It's one of those things that you're just not supposed to be. And the iron law of human nature, at least one iron law of human nature, is whatever is being repressed in a society-wide scale will become very, very appealing to young persons. And so I read secret history a lot of ways, but when I'm thinking about this dark academia thing, this vibe that young people are finding in this novel that attracts them, that draws them into some imaginal space that they want to be, I think part of the lure of it is the lure of either things that are a little bit forbidden or perhaps a little transgressive, but also things that are hard to find in our age. So you're talking about that kind of 80s academic world. I remember that world. I went to to college. I was a freshman in 1987. Right. This is pretty much exactly the time in which this novel is set. And I remember what that was like. You know, it's a world that I remember lit by the glow of a Coke machine, the old fashioned kind of Coke machine that would dispense a little paper cup and then put the soda and the syrup in. You probably never even seen one of those things. No, I I don't remember those. Yeah, but like that's how I remember the glow of a Coke machine uh, radiating against cinder block walls with MC Asher posters taped to them. 
I remember like Pee Wee's Playhouse and the Dorm Lounge TV, you know, certain pop songs. Like every now and then in Secret History, we got little little blips from that world. At one point, I think the song King's Lead Hat is mentioned, which I got excited about because I was like, hey, I loved that song back in the 80s. You know, like there's definitely a world of college in the 80s. And I think that it's really different from the collegiate world now. And the collegiate world now is strewn with yellow caution tape. All these places we've told that young people it's unsafe to go, or if they go, they're going to need safety, protective equipment. They're going to have to go in with a whole bunch of like supervision. The students in college these days are perfectly capable of getting themselves in trouble, just like students of every generation. But the college experience itself, I think, is far more constricted. Yeah. And I can't help but think that dark as this novel is, basically everything from the midpoint, even before the midpoint onwards, is for me the feeling of a noose ever tightening around my neck. Oh, yeah. You know, sort of this feeling of fate. Yes. Closing in on the characters. I have shit which, to say about that. Oh, I have a Let's bunch of stuff it. to say about that. Yeah. I want to talk about this novel as, among other things, a fate machine. Yeah. Oh, but, God. That's weird that you say that. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> but it seems to me that for all of that, there are also moments of the deepest kind of bride's head revisited like nostalgia for a way of living that was already dying out at the time this novel was written. One of the epigraphs in the book is uh, from Nietzsche. And it goes, I inquire now as to the genesis of a philologist and assert the following. One, a young man cannot possibly know what Greeks and Romans are. Two, he does not know whether he is suited for finding out about them. If what you learn in college actually matters, if reading Aeschylus yeah. or whatever can actually transform you and maybe turn you into something you don't want to become, then suddenly academia gains a whole new kind of uh, allure. Absolutely. Right? Yep. And that is not false. That is the case. And I think that probably a lot of contemporary academia involves defanging classics and that sort of thing so that they don't affect people the way they could if, for example, your lecturer was Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> like, can yeah. you imagine? Um, he didn't last very long as a lecturer. But you get a sense that there are these little pocket worlds within academia where real hazardous materials are being handled. And yes. so insofar as that is true, and you and I believe that's true because that's what Weird Studies is about. Right. You can understand why people would gravitate to this novel as testifying to this fact about knowledge, which I think contemporary academia largely exists to kind of suppress um, mm -hmm. in a weird way, you know, in the same way yeah. that an art gallery neuters art by framing it and putting the didactic panel on and, you know, the gift shop. There's all kinds of ways in which a culture can serve to neuter that aspect of itself, which is potentially transformative and therefore dangerous necessarily. Yeah. So or contain it at the very least. Contain it, right. Contain it. Yeah. And, and that's good enough. Like that's good. That's maybe that's all culture should do. I mean, culture in this more institutional sense. This is a story about people who perhaps weren't ready 
to learn what they learned. That's one way you could put it. Yeah. That went too yeah. deep. And they went there because of their professor. And this is placed to what you were just saying. So, you know, briefly, the plot is actually quite simple. The narrator is this guy from California who lies about his past. He wants to fit into this liberal arts college. So he makes up, he actually comes from a kind of working class background. From, he's from Plano, California. And he comes to this Vermont liberal arts college and he is drawn to the classics. And so he wants to be admitted to this small, exclusive little department, little group at the university led by this professor named Julian Morrow. And this guy has somehow, because of his credentials, because of the respect that he garnered, has been able to you know, absolve himself, it seems, of all academic duties. He just basically stays in his little section and teaches his courses and nobody bothers this guy and he decides who's in and who's out. And it's, he's got this, almost this little sect within the university. Yeah. yeah. He's a version of a kind of professor that one does sometimes encounter a charismatic intellectual who attracts young people to him or her. People always use the word cult for it because it has the cult-like sense of circled wagons of esoteric communication that exists among the members that they neither want to nor feel themselves able to express to outsiders. Right. And outsiders find such groups impenetrable and rather threatening. But at the same time, there's always going to be a certain kind of person who's going to find it irresistible. And again, it's the forbidden allure of the exclusive. Right, exactly. And so Julian Murrow is very careful about who he lets in. And finally, he lets the narrator into the group. And there's this wonderful way that Donna Tartt has of writing about what it's like to be an outlier in an in-group. Um, yes. The whole first part of the book is this guy trying to fit in with this group. And they seem to be very welcoming. They, they let him in. They start to share. They, different members of the group start confiding in him. And you can feel how he feels like he's in, but also out, because they're sharing a secret, a very big secret. At the same time, presiding over this, you have this cult leader who's teaching the classics and ancient Greek as though learning this language amounts to, you know, shifting into this ancient world by means of the language. So there's an esoteric aspect to what he's teaching. And so it is quite literally a cult. And the first class that Richard, the narrator, attends, this is on page 36, Julian Morrow announces to the class, I hope we're all ready to leave the phenomenal world and enter into the sublime, which sounds very precious, but it's also a very straightforward and matter of fact statement of exactly what you just said, the way that they are viewing the study of classics, not just as the study of a university topic, but as a kind of time travel or as a kind of ability to shift between zones, to leave the phenomenal world and literally enter another sublime and ecstatic world. And that's mirrored in the narrative itself. Like we as readers really feel the difference between these two worlds. When Richard, the narrator, goes into the world of Julian Morrow, you feel there's this kind of aesthetic shift or or zonal shift between that and the kind of frat life that he witnesses and kind of rubs shoulders with outside of there. So yeah, yeah, everything reinforces this. And of course, the novel is very much about how true this is, how true it is that if you immerse yourself sufficiently and properly in 
ancient Greek in this case, you will discover dimensions of the real that were not available to you before. Um, and, and, <laughs> and those might be yeah. dangerous. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, man, that's perfect. I'll tell you something also about the world that Donatard is conjuring here. So t I've been talking about the Coke machine and cinder block wall with MC Escher print world of going to college in the 1980s that I still remember quite well. But it's worth noting that the little cult group around Julian aren't part of that world at all. Like, they maintain a sort of oil and water separation from it, even when they're in it. They all wear sharply tailored suits. Yeah, right. At one point, they go to an off-campus bar, and the waitress thinks that they're Mormons off on a toot, because, like, who else but Mormons are going to wear suits just casually? They use fountain um, pens. They smoke pipes. You know, it goes on. Yeah. And every time they appear in, like, you know, a college beer bash or something, they just blow into it like they're a posse of beings from an entirely different narrative genre. Right. Like they just dropped out of a wormhole into this. Like they it, they seem like refugees from a 1950s Greenwich Village party at Delmore Schwartz's place or something. Right. And what's interesting is that Richard, as befits the reality anchor, narrator, person that we are kind of identifying with as readers, Richard is the one who is actually at home in both worlds. He lives in the collegiate life of Hampton College in the 1980s, and at the same time, he's also inducted into this cult world. So that contrast between worlds and the idea that you can have a world within a world, you can have a nested pocket dimension where people will slip through some kind of wormhole and enter a zone of ecstasies within the banal world of college life yeah. is one of the powerful inducements and doubtless one of the things people mean when they say dark academia. So there's stuff going on in this little group of students. It's a very small group. You know, you've got um, Richard, the narrator. You've got a set of twins. Camilla and Charles. Charles and Camilla. This guy, Francis, who's gay. His whole shtick is French decadence. He wears dandified accoutrement. A, what, how, do you, how do you say it? Pince-nez or... Pince-nez. Pince-nez? Yeah. 
pince-nez. Okay. Good. He wears a pince-nez. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then there's Henry. Henry, who is kind of the the charismatic figure. The uh, I, I got the sense that he was kind of like Julian Morrow's protege in, in a way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then finally, last but not least, there's a character named Edmund Corcoran, who is nicknamed Bunny. He's quite a piece of work. He's he's an outlier. Yeah. He doesn't quite fit in. He is bombastic and obnoxious from the start. He's um he's just he's a bit of a blowhard. Very difficult character to like even as a reader. He's from a wealthy family that has taught him that money is everything and yet also has refused to give him one red cent. And he's also been raised to believe that working for money is shameful. Right. So it's this a kind of pathetic emulation of an old world aristocratic set of values that this kid has been lumbered with. So as a result, he's an inveterate sponge. He's constantly touching all the other characters for money. He's a complete snob. And yet also you get the impression, at least academically, is not exactly gifted. He's not intellectual in the least. He's at Hampton to some extent because Hampton is, as some liberal arts colleges are, dumping grounds for the ungifted whelps of rich people. Right. Yeah, exactly. So he's he's a problem. And he's very close to Henry, but Henry, it, obviously, there's a lot of tension between the two. And Henry is constantly paying his, you know, everything. He's basically taking bunny on trips and it's actually quite weird to what extent henry is willing to spend money on bunny and henry is independently wealthy exactly um, yeah. but even for him this is becoming a strain and we learn in time why he's feeling so um not indebted but he can't say no to, to bunny we, we learn why so what happens is this at some point richard learns the truth which is that during the fall semester, if I'm not mistaken with the chronology, unbeknownst to Richard, the narrator, the group, so the twins and Henry and Francis, performed a Bacchic rite, a Dionysiac, ecstatic, or telestic, as the, I think the ancients would say, rite, in order to commune with the god Dionysus. And to become essentially Minads, you know, the Minads were the followers of Dionysus who would rove around the wilderness and devour any animal or person they encountered alive. And so uh, they they enter into an ecstasy. And here, um, the way that Henry describes the rite to Richard really resonates, it really echoes for me. It's a very strong echo of Arthur Macken's language. And, and oh, there absolutely. are very strong strains of decadence in this novel in all kinds of ways. So they perform the rite according to the ancient method. We're not given too much of a description of what they do or what they take, but it works. And that's basically what Henry tells Richard. It's like, we did this and it worked. In fact, he describes the experience, again, in very Machenesque language. Um, and I'll just read a small bit from Chapter four, I have the book on my e-reader, so page numbers will be useless. But in chapter four, Henry tells Richard the following. He says, it was heart-shaking, glorious, torches, dizziness, singing. So they went out into the woods to perform this rite, as one does for Dionysus. Uh, he goes on, wolves howling around us and a bull bellowing in the dark. The river ran white. It was like a film in fast motion, 
the moon waxing and waning, clouds rushing across the sky. Vines grew from the ground so fast they twined up the trees like snakes. Seasons passing in the wink of an eye, entire years for all I know. I mean, we think of phenomenal change as being the very essence of time when it's not at all. Time is something which defies spring and winter, birth and decay, the good and the bad, indifferently. Something changeless and joyous and absolutely indestructible. Duality ceases to exist. There's no ego, no I. And yet it's not at all like those horrid comparisons one sometimes hears in Eastern religions, the self being a drop of water swallowed by the ocean of the universe. It's more as if the universe expands to fill the boundaries of the self. You have no idea how pallid the workday boundaries of ordinary existence seem after such an ecstasy. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, those of our listeners who've heard our episode on Arthur Mackin's The White People will feel kind of like... Uh, bell ringing here very similar mm, language mm. and in the midst of this crazy ecstasy and it's it really is quite wild and to me it injects a very strong dose of the supernatural in this novel which is never acknowledged i've never seen a review or anyone acknowledge the quote-unquote magic realism uh, i yeah. don't like that term of the novel uh, but in the midst of this revelry they end up brutally murdering a farmer a local farmer yeah, they stray onto his land and he just shows up, doubtless wondering what the hell is going on, and they tear him to pieces. Literally, that's the secret yeah. they're holding. And it turns out that Bunny wasn't at the Bacchanal, but Bunny figured out what happened because he knew about it, and Bunny's been blackmailing them for months, at, you know, by the time Richard learns. Informally blackmailing. Informally and indirectly, you know, just constantly just insinuating but enough for their paranoia uh, to kick in. And, you know, so at some point, Henry, the leader of the group, decides that they need to murder Bunny. And you learn this on page one of the novel, you know? In a way, it's a murder mystery where the solution, the, the answer is given to you on the first page of the book. Yeah, but you read the entire book in order to put the, all the pieces together so that that makes sense. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Henry pushes Bunny off uh, a cliff into a ravine. Bunny dies. And then the rest of the book is the rather Dostoevsky-style aftermath of this horrible deed insofar as it affects Richard and also all the others. But Richard, is, of course, is our focal point. Richard becomes a real member of the group only when he participates in the murder of Bunny. And that's what participating really... passively because the only person who does the act of murdering is Henry. Correct. But Richard, like the rest of the group, is standing there like a group of judges at an execution. Yeah. And so he is complicit, you know, Absolutely morally complicit. complicit with this. Also with complicit this act. in the preparations and the planning. Obviously, was aware of it the whole time. So yeah. definitely an accomplice. And that's when you start to feel the gears of fate start turning with a little bit more gusto from there on. And then yeah. it's like a, a turn of the screw from there to the end of the book. And you see the almost automatic consequence of the action on the characters. And uh, that's the story. And and again, I love your, you said a, a fate machine, yes. which is, I want to get, get into. I'll let you comment. And I have a couple of things to read about that. So, okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read a little bit from... Early on, this is page 29, 
where Richard has his first successful conversation with Julian. He's already talked to Julian once about joining the classics group and has been politely rebuffed. But uh, things have changed a little bit, and now he is talking to Julian Morrow, and Julian seems interested in him, uh, seems to have come around. And so they chat back and forth, and fate comes up in their conversation. This is uh, Richard remembering this conversation that, in retrospect, you know, changes his entire life forever. I wish I could remember more of what was said that day. Actually, I do remember much of what I said, most of it too fatuous for me to recall with pleasure. The only point at which he differed, aside from an incredulous eyebrow raised at my mention of Picasso, when I came to know him better, I realized that he must have thought this an almost personal affront, was on the topic of psychology which was, after all, heavy on my mind, working for Dr. Roland and everything. So he has a campus job working for a psychology researcher. But do you really think, he said, concerned, that one can call psychology a science? Certainly. What else is it? But even Plato knew that class and conditioning and so forth have an inalterable effect on the individual. It seems to me that psychology is only another word for what the ancients called fate, Psychology is a terrible word, he agreed vigorously. Yes, it is terrible, isn't it, he said, but with an expression that indicated that he thought it rather tasteless of me even to use it. Perhaps in certain ways it is a helpful construct in talking about a certain kind of mind. The country people who live around me are fascinating because their lives are so closely bound to fate that they really are predestined. But, he laughed, I'm afraid my students are never very interesting to me because I always know exactly what they're going to do. This is a useful thing to read for a couple of reasons. For one thing, that it establishes the marrow deep snobbery of Julian. Julian is somebody who has affected a thoroughly aristocratic bearing in the world. He has a kind of unspecified past as a brilliant intellectual, a bon vivant, somebody who knew all the big figures of the intellectual and artistic and even kind of celebrity scene in previous decades. He's set up as a figure of impossible glamour. And he talks about, you know, the country people, just ordinary people, as if they're like zoo animals. You know, he doesn't view them as even belonging to the same order of being as somebody as aristocratic himself. And in the passage I read, one thing that it establishes is that someone like himself, an aristocrat of the intellect and of sensibility, is perhaps by virtue of belonging to that elect company is a self-determining being, free of fate, somebody who is free to become what they want to be. And he clearly values this in himself and clearly feels that this is what sets him and perhaps some of his students, but he makes clear, certainly not all of them, from the common herd of humanity. And it is clearly important to Julian uh, to be disassociated from the common herd of humanity. But his pretenses end up being pathetic. By the end, he is revealed to be a rather shallow and cowardly sort of person, and also no more immune to the powers of fate than any of his luckless students. And 
He, however, does say something very interesting that I think is carried forth in this book. Perhaps a version of the old saw of character is destiny. Okay, so I was talking about this as a fate machine. There is actually a very particular point that's around page 200, I think, where Richard consciously reflects, looking back on this time in his life, you know, right after he's been told about how Bunny is holding the death of this farmer over the heads of everybody in their little group and using it to extort like food and trips and clothing and all kinds of things from people. Uh, right after Richard has been told what the situation is, he wakes up and he sort of reflects like, I guess that might have been the time to do something, but it didn't really occur to me at the time to do anything. And from that moment forward, Everything is just the working out of a logic of fate that brooks no resistance. Yes. And part of that fate is psychology. There are all these times that things could have gone differently, but they didn't. And it has to do with psychology. So, okay, something I find interesting about Bunny is he's a thoroughly bad character. Yeah. You know, he's bigoted. He's constantly saying rude things about gay people and women and Italians and like just basically any group that he can affect some attitude of snobbish superiority to, he will. He's unbelievably cruel in his comments to his supposed friends. And as Richard remarks, he is like a gun dog, indefatigable and unthrow-offable when he would get a sense of what your weakness was. And so what Bunny ends up being is he's, he's a thoroughly bad character, but not evil. He's just kind of a mirror of other people's shortcomings. So he can always figure out what people are up to. So like Richard is ashamed of his working class background and is always telling little lies to try and cover it up. And Bunny figures it out instantly that Richard doesn't wear the right clothes for somebody who comes from money. He doesn't have the right tastes. He doesn't do the right stuff. And so he's constantly needling and like, where'd you get that jacket champ? Yeah. Um, oh, except he doesn't say champ. He uses a kind of affected PG Woodhouseian vocabulary, old top. Yeah, old or old soak or whatever, you know, and he does it insistently and always jabbing the needle exactly in the place where it will hurt the most. And he does this to everybody. And at one point, Richard's like, I'd like to say that when we pushed him over the edge, I felt some kind of horror. But mostly at the time, I was thinking about all the horrible shit that he said to me. And you know that that's the case for everybody. What would have happened that could have pushed them off of this course that they're on, this ineluctable course to destruction of Bunny and therefore their own self-destruction? Somebody could have just realized that it's awful to murder somebody no matter what. Right. No matter how much of an asshole they are. But each of them has that little moral sensor deactivated in them Until because Bunny has managed to hold a mirror up to them to show them the thing they can't accept about themselves. For Richard, it's his social climbing. Uh, for Camilla, it's the idea that she should live her life to be an appropriate wife and help meet for some guy. For Charles, it's the fact that he drinks too much, that he's constantly needling Charles about his drinking, you know, so on and so forth. 
And so just by being this somewhat conscienceless character, although he is the only one who develops any conscience about the murder of the farmer, it actually makes him a little bit crazy carrying this secret around for the other people. It's his own. Um, he ends up writing uh, a kind of raving, rambling letter to Julian Morrow about the murder. Denouncing his denouncing friends. Denouncing his yeah. friends. And it's just guilt-ridden. Like, you can yes. see that he is carrying their guilt. So in, in a way, he's kind of the moral conscience of the book. And this is a crazy thing. He's a bad guy, but he's not evil. No. The other kids are far more lovable. And you care about, as a reader, you care about them. They're far more interesting. They are, in every respect, people that you would love to hang out with, but they're evil. There's a coldness and cruelty to them which sometimes is shocking when you hear their conversation. I, I, yeah. One kind of banger of a moment is when they're talking about the murder and somebody brings up the moral objection, almost like in an obligatory fashion. <laughs> well, should we consider the immorality of this act yeah. of murder? And then uh, Henry says, I consider it, I think of it in terms of a redistribution of matter. Yes. Which is, which is, <laughs> which is quite in keeping with the metaphysics that they're, embracing in their kind of delving into the kind of world of the ancient Greeks. Yes. Um, so this brings me to the other side. So I love the way you framed it psychologically. I think you're absolutely right. Character is fate. But why is character fate? Because in this metaphysical universe, there is no redemption. There's only the iron justice of the machine unfurling yes. <laughs> as it will yes. as a consequence of your character. And That's so, right. And, and it's very important to me, I think in keeping with what you were just saying, that the main character is first and foremost a liar. He lies yeah. to himself. He lies to everyone. He pretends he's someone he's not. And that's the first hint we have in light of what you said, that things are going to go badly for this guy. You know, the original title for the book was The God of Illusions. Mm. That's what it was supposed to be titled. And I wonder if they changed the title because Clive Barker came up with Lord of Illusions around the same time. <laughs> his, oh, yeah. I, I don't know if that's why. Because The God of Illusions is the way that E.R. Dodds, in his wonderful classic book, The Greeks and the Irrational, calls Dionysus. Dionysus is the master of illusions. So book two, the second part of the novel, begins with the epigraph, quote, Dionysus is the master of illusions who can make a vine grow out of a ship's plank and in general, enable his votaries to see the world as the world is not. And so he's a god of contradiction. And the main character in presenting himself and even almost believing himself to be something that he is not is kind of like already in the Dionysian zone at the beginning, if we want to consider that aspect of Dionysus as being uh, kind of one of the dimensions of, of the god. So there's the psychological aspect, and then there's a metaphysical aspect too, and I really do think this is a kind of metaphysical novel. And you get a sense of this when Richard is talking about his love of the ancient Greek language. This is in, I think it's chapter... It's in chapter five. Chapter five, right. Yeah. Uh, in page one, page 199, 200 of the paperback edition. Okay, so at one point in that section... We read the following. This is Richard narrating. He's talking about the Greek concept of fire. And he says, I can only say that an incendium, so the Latin word for fire, I can only say that an incendium is in its nature entirely different from the fur 
with which a Frenchman lights a cigarette, and both are very different from the stark, inhuman poor that the Greeks knew, the poor that roared from the towers of Ilion, or leapt and screamed on that desolate, windy beach from the funeral pyre of Patroclos. Poor, he goes on, that one word contains for me the secret, the bright, terrible clarity of ancient Greek. How can I make you see it, this strange, harsh light which pervades Homer's landscapes and illumines the dialogues of Plato? An alien light, inarticulable in our common tongue. Our shared language is a language of the intricate, the peculiar, the home of pumpkins and ragamuffins and bodkins and beer, the tongue of Ahab and Falstaff and Mrs. Gamp. And while I find it entirely suitable for reflections such as these, it fails me utterly when I attempt to describe in it what I love about Greek, that language innocent of all quirks and cranks, a language obsessed with action and with the joy of seeing action multiply from action, action marching relentlessly ahead, with yet more actions filing in from either side to fall into neat step at the rear, in a long, straight rank of cause and effect toward what will be inevitable, the only possible end. And so here we have a sense of how the very language of the Greeks and the universe that that language evokes is a universe of fate, of irreversible and relentless fate. And that's what ends up determining the kind of machinery of the plot as it unfolds. It reminded me of this incredible passage from Jean Cocteau's uh, play, La Machine Infernale, The Infernal Machine, which is a retelling of the Oedipus tragedy by Cocteau. And by the way, the epigraph for that play, or one of them is, Les dieux existent, c'est le diable. The gods exist, they are the devil. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, at the beginning of the play, there's a, a prologue. And um, I, I just quickly translated it before we, uh, we recorded today. So I'll read my, no doubt, shitty translation. But at the end of this prologue, the voice says the following. And remember, he's talking, the voice is talking about the tragedy of Oedipus, who married his mother, killed his father, and found out only long afterwards. So Cocteau's voice says, quote, For the gods to be thoroughly entertained, it is important that their victim fall from a great height. Years of prosperity go by. Two daughters and two sons complicate the monstrous marriage. The people love their king. But then the plague strikes and the gods accuse an unnamed criminal of having infected the land. They demand that he be hunted down. Reeling from one discovery to the next, drunk on his own misfortune, Oedipus is finally caught. The trap closes in on him. All comes to light. Jocasta, that's his wife and mother, Jocasta hangs herself from her red scarf and with her golden brooch, Oedipus gouges out his eyes. And then the voice goes on. Behold. O spectator, wound up before you, such that its spring may unwind slowly over the entire span of a human life, one of the most perfect machines ever constructed by the infernal gods for the mathematical annihilation of a mortal. Ah, and very so good. again, this idea of this fate machinery, machine. this fate machine. Yeah, so I couldn't believe you said that at the beginning. And that is what we see in this book. I think that in order to make this book, she really had to embrace this pagan cosmos. There are moments in the book where I'm like, is there no light in this world? Is there no way out? And she doesn't allow any of that to happen. This is not crime and punishment. 
right? This is a mm. pagan story until the very, very end where there's a hint of something else. Well, maybe we'll get there later. Yeah. There's a very strong allegorical kind of whoop thing at, happening at the end, which I found touching. Uh, Donatard is a Roman Catholic, so. So it communicated to you on that level. Yes. Do you want me to tell you what I saw at the end? Yeah, might as well. Yeah. yeah. So, so at the end, Henry ends up committing suicide. That's the big tragic closer of the novel. And then there's an epilogue where we see how everybody's life kind of falls apart in the wake of that. And the book ends beautifully in the land of dream with the narrator, Richard, saying, oh, by the way, like almost like he, was, he wasn't going to say this, by the way, I had this weird dream the other day. And he starts describing this dream he had where he was in this bombed out city, maybe London, old buildings and ruins. But among these ruins, there were certain very futuristic buildings kind of gleaming out of the ruins and with walkways between them. And in the dream, Richard enters one of these buildings. He says it may be some kind of museum. And he sees a bunch of men smoking pipes gathered around a glass case in which there's a tiny machine. And all these men are kind of looking at the machine I think they're men. There might be women there too, but they're all smoking pipes anyways. And they're eerily kind of like underlit by this thing. And Richard goes and looks into the glass and he sees this little machine that's constantly reconfiguring itself to look like different monuments of the ancient world. So it becomes the Parthenon and the Pantheon and the Colosseum, also some Sumerian buildings, one after another. And these learned men, these academics essentially, or scholars are looking down at it. And among them is Henry. Henry who died and Henry's got the bullet hole in his head and Richard says, Oh, you know, people are saying you're dead, Henry. And Henry says, no, I'm not dead. I just, I'm having problems with my passport. I can't travel as freely as I would like to something like that. And they're talking. And as they talk, the buildings into which the machine is reconfiguring itself, move forward in time. And suddenly you see Hagia Sophia the Basilica of St. Mark's in Venice, etc. And while it's doing that, Henry says, oh, I got to go, I have an appointment, and then leaves down a gleaming passage, suggesting to me that essentially he's seeing Henry in purgatory, and what's happening there symbolically is that the Christian monuments are hinting at the possibility of some kind of redemption. Hmm. Um, now, that's my interpretation. I'm not going to say that that's the right one, but I... I read it that way. And it, it, it oh, certainly, interesting. it ends with the image of Henry walking down this gleaming corridor, which certainly seems to suggest to me the possibility of some kind of post-mortem redemption. But that is the epilogue of a book that remains entirely committed to its ancient fate machine aesthetic. Otherwise, yep. yeah. I will say, apropos the ending, I believe 100% that that encounter with Henry is not, quote unquote, just a dream, that it's actually a postmortem encounter with Henry. You were saying earlier that the central event of this, which happens off stage, we don't see it directly, we just have it reported to us by Henry, the Bacchanal, that that is an authentic moment of the supernatural. Um, it's like a little bit like the way the supernatural enters into a novel like Little Big, by John Crowley. Mm -hmm. Mostly the things that are supernatural, at least in the sense of like going beyond the remit of so-called realist fiction, happen mostly offstage and they're more alluded to than directly perceived. 
And they are almost sort of like, you know, like how Pluto was originally discovered, like in the 1930s, is that astronomers saw a perturbation, like a wobble in the orbit of Uranus. Yes. Yes, it is. It is wobbly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> kind of classy joke that people tune into our show for. Yeah. Um, it was, and, it uh, was so inducted. It was, yes. is that the term? It was inducted. Yeah, they inducted its presence. I think that's the logical or the... Rather than deduce the, the the inference, I always yeah. get those mixed up. Uh, so the point is that it's like a sensed but not directly sensed presence that is perceptible mostly in its influence on what can be perceived. Exactly, that's the logic of the supernatural in this story. But it is there. Oh yeah, and it's not just like some kind of bullshit magic realist thing. It's the tissue of the story. And one interesting thing with the murder of Bunny is how he keeps popping up like a bad penny. Like before anybody even discovers the body, the discovery of the body is delayed by a snowstorm. One reason why people don't even look for him until a week has passed is because there's one student who is absolutely sure she saw him at a bank or something. Right. Like the day he was murdered, maybe a day after he was murdered, he keeps showing up. Like Richard is accidentally shot when Charles and Henry are struggling over the gun. And when he's in hospital recovering from his wounds and he's sort of hazy and floating in and out of consciousness, he keeps seeing Bunny sitting there looking rather uninterested, but he sees Bunny yeah. there. And to me, it is inarguable that these moments that Bunny appears impossibly post-mortem are real moments. He's actually appearing. And that dream with Henry, the things that happen in dreams are real events. They just happen in dreams. Yeah. And so that last connection with Henry, it's a dream and the dream feels like a dream. It's a wonderfully rendered dream in prose, but at the same time, it is absolutely real. Yeah, because dreams are real too. You know, yeah. there are moments yeah. where the, the actual like physical world of the narrative uh, suddenly kind of becomes very dreamlike. And, and Donna Tartt is an absolute master of this. I find the entire, the period immediately following the murder of Bunny, the way she goes through the stages, not of grief, but of guilt, I guess, in Richard is very interesting. And the way that he ends up kind of like it's like if you have something weighing on your conscience that heavily you're going through the motions of life and since you don't want to be caught you're going to be fully committed to playing your part in the world and looking like everything's normal but in your mind you're completely dissociated from your real situation because yes. you're constantly thinking I'm doing this now I'm eating this ham sandwich because I don't want to be caught for murder like everything that you're doing that you would normally yeah. just do, you're now doing as a kind of way of hiding yourself. So yeah. you're, you're revealing yourself to hide yourself. So the initial lie that mm. Richard was telling about his own past is amplified once the murder is committed. He has to be even more of a liar. And there's there are moments <laughs> well, in there. this happens to all of the kids. Yes. The thing yeah. that Bunny figures out about them, that he needles them about, and that diffuses their moral conscience apparently enough that they're fine being complicit in his murder. In each case, that's how the kid is destroyed. That's true. Yeah. Richard just becomes the man without qualities, just drifting through a clearly meaningless life of appearances. Camilla ends up just being the caretaker of her decrepit elderly grandmother, the freedom and autonomy that uh, she quietly but clearly desires. Oh, and she loses her lover. She, We learn rather late in the novel, uh, she and Henry love each other very deeply. We also learn that 
she has a kind of incestuous relationship with her brother. You know, that also is something that Bunny was needling at. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out he was right. He needled Charles for his alcoholism, and Charles ends up burnt out as a terminal alcoholic who is not dead as of the end of the novel, but you kind of get the sense it's only a matter of time. And Francis ends up committing suicide. Well, he survives his suicide attempt, oh, but right. he, he, he commits a kind of soul suicide. He's gay, and his family finds out about it. He's extremely wealthy, and they say, we will cut you off without a penny unless you marry this socially appropriate woman who he has nothing in common with and who, in fact, he can't stand her. She makes him miserable, but he goes through with it anyway because he simply can't imagine not living a luxurious, well-appointed life. So Bunny gets the last laugh in the end, <laughs> in the yeah. sense that he saw the kind of lie or contradiction in each of these people that would ultimately determine their fate. But just to get back to what I was saying about the dreamlike, I find that that whole section of the novel where Richard is wrestling with the guilt of what's happened and kind of the reality of it is slowly sinking in to be phenomenally written. There's a moment yeah. where it's towards dusk, I think, They've been talking to the police, and suddenly, um, this is in chapter six, Richard just finds himself kind of like zoning out of the scene, and he writes, white sky. He's basically just suddenly registering his surroundings. He says, white sky, trees fading at the skyline, the mountains gone. My hands dangled from the cuffs of my jacket as if they weren't my own. I never got used to the way the horizon there could just erase itself and leave you marooned, adrift and an incomplete dreamscape that was like a sketch for the world you knew, the outline of a single tree standing in for a grove, lampposts and chimneys floating up out of context before the surrounding canvas was filled in, an amnesia land, a kind of skewed heaven, where the old landmarks were recognizable but spaced too far apart, and disarranged and made terrible by the emptiness around them. First of all, that just captures the feeling of a winter dusk for me perfectly. Anyways... Mm. An old shoe was lying on the asphalt in front of the loading dock, where the ambulance had been only minutes before. It wasn't Bunny's shoe. I don't know whose it was or how it got there. It was just an old tennis shoe lying on its side. I don't know why I remember that now, or why it made such an impression on me. Such a beautiful thing where this, this yeah. completely nondescript object suddenly becomes this shining symbol of the truth of what's going on. You know, yeah. this abandoned shoe. And she has this way of like veering off into kind of dreamscapes in her narrative in a way that I think you can read psychologically as one would, as a, your typical critic would. But I think what we're doing here is trying to read those passages metaphysically, that the, the real itself includes those dream dimensions that sometimes reveal themselves to us in moments of intensity or ecstasy or in profound guilt or sorrow or whatever.
I want to return to the passage that you read out from before, a passage on page 200 of the paperback edition, the stuff about the Greek language, which is one of my absolute favorite passages, not only in this novel, but any novel that I've read in recent years, because it nails something important to me. Now, we've already talked about the way in which the Greek language itself is held up as a figure of fate, being a kind of fate machine in the way that this novel is. But I also want to think about that experience of a cloistered little pocket dimension of intense aesthetic experience nested within the banal reality of a college campus. And the experience of those who inhabit such spaces. Because although the little cabal that I belonged to in graduate school was in many ways quite different from the one portrayed in this novel, for one thing, we never killed anybody, though I was talking to one of my oldest friends who was in that group just on this weekend, and we were talking about how, like, the fact that we never killed each other was not for lack of wanting to. I don't know. It was a an incestuous, weird little clique built up around a charismatic professor, and that is in many ways not probably the best setup for sensible mentally healthy social behavior. It's a setup for a kind of madness and excess, but also it's a setup for a kind of beauty, a very rarefied beauty. And it's the beauty of inaccessible things, the beauty of inaccessible knowledges, knowledges that are esoteric in a very profound sense, that worm that's baiting the hook of this novel, I believe, for a new generation of writers. That sense of a little snow globe world within which these, what is it, six kids um, sit around a table with their all-wise, all-knowing, brilliant professor. Of course, he's not quite as wonderful at the end of the novel as he seems at the beginning, but leaving that aside... That experience is done full justice to in this novel. And however grim and dark this novel ends up being, it never entirely erases the brilliance of that vision. And I'm going to read a little bit further into that passage. In a certain sense, this is why I felt so close to the others in the Greek class. They too knew this beautiful and harrowing landscape, centuries dead. They'd had the same experience of looking up from their books with fifth-century eyes and finding the world disconcertingly sluggish and alien, as if it were not their home. It was why I admired Julian and Henry in particular. Their reason, their very eyes and ears, were fixed irrevocably in the confines of those stern and ancient rhythms. The world, in fact, was not their home, at least not the world as I knew it. And far from being occasional visitors to this land, which I myself knew only as an admiring tourist, they were pretty much its permanent residence, as permanent as I suppose it was possible for them to be. And he goes on about how Henry, who is something of a, a linguistic prodigy, who just picks up languages, knows a hatful of ancient languages already, and can speak in Greek more fluently, with more wit and eloquence than he can in English. 
you know, this is a weird thing to bring in, a little sidelight, but I was thinking about like a not very good Star Trek The Next Generation episode where Data wants to learn about humor. This is where... Uh, I remember he, that uh, one. Where Joe Piscopo shows up. Of all performers available, who is considered funniest? 23rd century Stan Riga specialized in jokes about quantum mathematics. No, too esoteric, more generic. Accessing. There's a moment where Data is asking the computer for the funniest humor that has ever been recorded. And it gives him the name of a mathematician. And Data says something like, too esoteric. I mean, obviously, we could never really determine what was the funniest joke ever. But if we could, I love the idea that it would, in fact, be a recondit mathematical equation that would only be understandable by a handful of specialists. Right. But if you truly were able to enter into the logic of some extremely difficult mathematics, you would be able to understand like all of the things that humor does, the way it dislocates and relocates and subverts, blah, 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 all those formal operations. It, the idea that you could find those operations executed most perfectly in mathematics. So it would be the world's funniest joke, but only a handful of people ever could understand it. Because even understanding it wouldn't just be somebody explaining the joke. It would be having to do like a PhD in mathematics to get there. I love the idea that the purest abstraction of the mechanism of humor, that that in itself would be the funniest thing ever. <laughs> I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something that I've come back to again and again. I talked about it, especially in the second of our two glass bead game episodes. And I'm a little obsessed with this because as somebody who devoted a significant chunk of his life to the study of classical music and in an earlier stage of my life, back when I was in the Coke machine and cinder block wall days, when I was a piano student at Indiana University's School of Music, long before it was the Jacobs School and long before I had a job here, it was the experience that Richard is talking about here of being with a small group of people working very intensely on something very esoteric, like the distinction between what I would think of as like a beautiful phrasing. Like, let's say just one phrase from the midst of Faure's Nocturne Number 11 for piano, itself a somewhat obscure piece that would not be known by that many, even pretty hardcore classical music lovers. But you know, the turning of a phrase in the middle of its development and really, really savoring the exquisite refinement of how that phrase is turned in a recording by some great pianist of the old school. That was the breath and bread of my days. That is what I would do at the end of a day, grab a bottle of wine, kick back with my friend Tim and talk about recordings and talk about great pianists of old talk about obscure pieces of music and how you could play it like this or how you could play it like that. And I like to think that those moments of beauty that we savored are some of the most exquisite moments of beauty that anyone ever savored in any context, ever. And how could I even begin to express that? Yeah. Even if I gave myself a whole podcast, like my Wagner Ring Cycle podcast, in a sense, is an attempt to do something like this, to share those exquisite moments of beauty, which is one reason why it's taken me for fucking ever, even to make it to the end of the first scene of Das Rheingold, why I'm like perseverating over every little detail. Even if I 
gave that phrase and that foray nocturne, that kind of treatment, I could never really establish the inside of that experience. You know, like in the last episode, I did that whole monologue at the beginning of our, the episode on the inside and the outside. I'm talking about a certain kind of an inside here. What this novel does is it establishes one of those insights, what it would be like to see that landscape fully realized in front of you, to bathe in the light of that poor, that harsh alien fire that flames over the, the landscape of ancient Greece. Mm. This world that I can tell you about, but you can't enter it like I can unless like Henry, you're like some kind of prodigy of language or like me back in the day, somebody who had studied piano from an early age and had developed this high level professional competence in playing piano. These disciplines which are being hunted to extinction. Keep in mind, classics departments are being closed left and right across American academia. Classical music performance is under siege in many institutions where people are like, well, who even listens to classical music anyway? It's not relevant or relatable to the young people and blah, blah, blah. But I feel the greatest grief at the passing of these little, beautiful, nested worlds. Yeah, it's like a star dying. Yeah, it's like a star dying. And to me, one of the great things in this is capturing those worlds, even when that world becomes fatally compromised by the fact that the beauty of that world is untethered to anything more stable. Beauty without a connection to the good. Yeah. Oh, and that gets me to the point I wanted to make next. But I love the way you're saying this. It reminds me of um, this moment where Deleuze was asked about his ideas about joy. This is in his famous Abyssinaire interview at the end of his life, in which he's asked about joy. And Spinoza's concept of joy is what Deleuze was endorsing here when he said that joy for him is the fulfillment of a power. And puissance in French is not pouvoir. There's two words for power in French, and they're very different. Pouvoir is what we associate with like dominating power, power from above, power over something. But puissance is more like capacity or ability or an inborn power. And to fulfill a power for Spinoza is what we call joy. And anything that diminishes our power is what Spinoza calls sadness. And he's using these terms in a rather Mm. technical way. And so it's the sad passions that want to close down classics departments. And the sad passions want to prevent the fulfillment of certain powers or the attainment of certain joys. Mm. And the reason why I bring this up is because Deleuze's example, and he's been talking about painters, and he says, I conquer, however slightly, a small piece of color. I enter into a little color. Joy, that's what it is to fulfill a power, to enact a power. For him, joy is the painter finally being able to get a color to see a color come together, either in his work or her work, or seeing it in somebody else's work. And it's something that one needs to be fully initiated to the discipline of painting to see. It's simply something that's not immediately accessible. It's not easy. It's not something you put in a Marvel movie so that everybody laughs in the room. It's not artifice. It's art. It's, it inheres in the singular, and it asks a lot of the recipient. It asks a lot of the person who's, who stands to feel that joy. And that's why I said it's like a star dying, because the thing about stars mm. is that they're, they're magnificent, and there are 
there's an infinite number of them. And the idea that certain stars should go out to me is just absolutely tragic. Since if there's mm. one thing in the universe we can't get too many of, it's stars. <laughs> yeah. There are yeah. it's full of stars. There's reason to preserve these cultures that allow access to these joys that are not simply subjective states, not just psychological states, but they have their metaphysical thick end dimension. They are aspects of reality. They're worlds. They're real. And if we want to, if we prevent ourselves from accessing those worlds, we're preventing ourselves from accessing certain parts of reality. And there's a cost to that, you know? So anyways, just as a kind of amen to what you were saying, I wanted to say one more thing, just as a kind of addendum to what I said earlier about my interpretation of the epilogue with the cathedrals indicating a kind of like emergence of redemption in the story. Having said that, uh, this is not a moralistic novel. Nope. Yeah. But it is, I think, a highly... Furthest thing from it. It's a moral novel, but it's not a moralistic novel. Moral novel. Exactly. It's a deeply moral novel in that it acknowledges the axis that we call morality without telling you where to sit on that axis. My favorite character in the, st- in the novel is Henry. And I feel mm. deep sympathy with that character, even though he's the one who says and does the most evil shit. Yeah. There's an honesty to him. His willingness to face reality as it is presented is actually quite, I think, moving. Yeah. And the way his strategy at the end is to simply extinguish himself, you know, to extinguish his affects, to basically just, he starts to garden. He becomes almost a kind of monastic in the wake mm. of this horrible deed. And he seems almost to be okay with it mm-hmm. and to accept his fate. In the end, he kills himself to save the group. I wanted to bring that up because it makes the novel beautiful. Even in its evil, it's beautiful. In its decadence, that's why it's a decadent novel. It is the beauty of the axis of morality as such, not the beauty of the good at the expense of of evil. It's the whole shebang that's taken on. There's a moment towards in the first chapter where this is kind of given to us to ponder. This is when the group is together with Julian Morrow and they're reading Aeschylus's um, Agamemnon. And uh, Camilla is reading the scene where Clytemnestra kills her husband, Agamemnon. We read, her voice in Greek was harsh and low and lovely. And she reads, thus he died and all the life struggled out of him. And as he died, he spattered me with the dark red and violent driven rain of bitter savored blood to make me glad as gardens stand among the showers of God in glory at the birth time of the buds. There was a brief silence after she had finished. Rather to my surprise, Henry winked solemnly at her across the table, of course, because of the murder, I suppose. Julian smiled. What a beautiful passage, he said. I never tired of it. But how is it that such a ghastly thing, a queen stabbing her husband in his bath, is so lovely to us? It's the meter, said Francis, iambic trimeter. Those really hideous parts of Inferno, for instance, Pier de Medicina, with his nose hacked off and talking through a bloody slit in his windpipe. I can think of worse than that, Charles said. So can I. But that passage is lovely, and it's because of the tersa rima, the music of it. The trimeter tolls through that speech of Clytemnestra's like a bell. But iambic trimeter is fairly common in Greek lyric, isn't it, said Julian. Why is that particular section so breathtaking? 
why do we not find ourselves attracted to some calmer and more pleasing one? Aristotle says in the Poetics, said Henry, that objects such as corpses, painful to view in themselves, can become delightful to contemplate in a work of art. And I believe Aristotle is correct, Julian goes on. After all, what are the scenes in poetry graven on our memories, the ones that we love the most? Precisely these, the murder of Agamemnon and the wrath of Achilles, Dido on the funeral pyre, the daggers of the traitors and Caesar's blood. Remember how Suetonius describes his body being borne away on the litter, with one arm hanging down? Death is the mother of beauty. And what is beauty? Terror. Well said, said Julian. Beauty is rarely soft or consolatory. Quite the contrary. Genuine beauty is always quite alarming. Marvelous. This is reminding me of the end of another novel of Donatart's, The Goldfinch, where the main character, Theo, is reflecting on his life. I'm not going to go into the like plot, but he is somebody who, like the characters in The Secret History, has led a life that has been, to some extent, not only infused with beauty, but like his fate is a fate of chasing beauty often to his own destruction. And the very conclusion of the novel, the finale of the novel, is an astonishing monologue, an incredible meditation on art and morality and a whole bunch of things that I don't have time to talk about. It's a very weird studies little piece of writing. If you haven't read it, I commend it to your attention. But I'm going to read a little bit of that astonishing monologue. The narrator, Theo, has been talking about the old nostrum to be yourself, be true to yourself. And he's like, yeah, but I got a problem with that. He says, only here's what I really, really want someone to explain to me. What if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? What if the heart, for its own unfathomable reasons, leads one willfully and in a cloud of unspeakable radiance away from health, domesticity, civic responsibility, and strong social connections, and all the blandly held common virtues, and instead straight towards a beautiful flare of ruin, self-immolation, disaster? Is Kitsy right? Kitsy is a, a character in this novel. If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight toward the bonfire, is it better to turn away? Stop your ears with wax? Ignore all the perverse glory your heart is screaming at you? Set yourself on the course that will lead you dutifully toward the norm, reasonable hours, and regular medical checkups, stable relationships, and steady career advancement, the New York Times, and brunch on Sunday, all with the promise of being somehow a better person? Or, like Boris, another character, is it better to throw yourself headfirst and laughing into the holy rage calling your name? It's not about outward appearances, but inward significance. A grandeur in the world, but not of the world. A grandeur that the world doesn't understand. That first glimpse of pure otherness, in whose presence you bloom out and out and out. A self one does not want a heart one cannot help. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. 
and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.